So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang app. Downloaded it, listened to it, real cool, you know. And the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the cold, but... And so we did it in Nottingham. And when we got to Nottingham, she said, as we hit the stage, she said, oh, is this, are these the wings? As in the side of the stage. She didn't realise that was the stage. That was it. I was like, no, no, that is it. Right. She was like, oh, oh okay. A couple of years ago, I was asked to host World Ballet Day at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. I've no idea why they asked me but it was going to be the first time they'd ever allowed cameras behind the scenes at the Royal Ballet and it sounded really interesting, so I said yes. I arrived to watch the morning rehearsal and I found myself in this room full of the most remarkable athletes. And when you're watching people working at that level, you're actually just watching humans in total flow. And so I realised very quickly that it didn't really matter that I knew nothing about ballet. Throughout the day, various choreographers were holding classes and then all of a sudden Wayne turned up and I knew he was resident choreographer, but I knew very little else about him. And he began to work with the dancers and immediately you could see there was something special going on. He was just totally immersed in the whole thing and there was a level of concentration and intensity that hadn't been in the room until that point. After the piece, I asked Wayne what age he was when he first started having ballet lessons, and he said that he'd never actually had one in his entire life. From talking to him further, it became clear that he'd taken an unusual route to becoming resident choreographer at one of the most respected dance companies in the world. Wayne was born in 1970, just outside Manchester, in a town called Stockport. Tell me a bit about your parents. You know, they're brilliant, my parents. They're kind of very normal. They, they weren't really from an arts background at all. Actually, my dad's from a farming background in Scotland. It's quite a poor um, family upbringing. My mum's from a, a small place called Banff in Scotland. They met at 19, kind of just totally fell in love. They just kind of found such solace and happiness and kind of joy with one another and decided they needed to get out of Scotland. It was funny because I think, you know, my, my dad had had this horrendous day on the farm. I don't know exactly what happened, but he got back home and they, they literally both burnt their furniture. So you're going home and you're sitting in the you think, now, when and how am I ever going to get away from this? They literally took it outside, burnt the furniture, and packed a bag, didn't hardly have any money, basically, and just left. They just came to England, ended up for some strange reason in, in Stockport. And, um, yeah, just started a new life together there. And literally within a week, you know, he had a better job. They'd started to, you know, through hard graft. I think one of the things I really learned from my parents is just this this really important thing about just working hard. So I think the things that they gave me most in my life was just this attitude all the time, just give it a go. If you fail, it doesn't matter, but just have a go, have a go. And give me the confidence to try and then just support you in doing it. I, th I think another thing that my parents have always been very good at is really 
being very empowering with all my friends. I had a lot, I'm an only child, but I had a lot of friends growing up. My parents fostered children when I was growing up. They fostered almost 21 children. I was kind of surrounded in a house with, um, with, with children who'd often come from quite difficult uh, backgrounds. But I was surrounded by people where I had to share, where I had to kind of um, understand something of what was going on with them. And then at what point did you realise you wanted to be a dancer? So I was growing up in the 70s and like later on in the 70s, you know, all those films like Grease and Saturday Night Fever were, were coming on, on, on in the cinema. And, you know, let's remember there's no internet in those days. OK, we're back. We don't have access to lots and lots of information. We had like Encyclopedia Britannica, basically, <laughs> National Geographic, some news, and three TV channels. You probably live with your family, you hang out with your buddies, and on Saturday night you go all off 2001, right? That's right. I mean, it wasn't like it is now where you, you have so much ability to see stuff. And so when these movies came on, they, they were like kind of like seismic changes to the way in which you look at the world. What do you got to fuck with stairway stars or what? Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I just, there was just something about the... So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang app. Downloaded it, listened to it, real cool, you know. And the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the cold, but... And so we did it in Nottingham, and when we got to Nottingham, she said, as we hit the stage, she said, oh, is this, are these the wings, as in the side of the stage? She didn't realise that was the stage. That was it. I was like, no, no, that is it. Right. She was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> A couple of years ago, I was asked to host World Ballet Day at the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. I've no idea why they asked me, but it was going to be the first time they'd ever allowed cameras behind the scenes at the Royal Ballet, and it sounded really interesting, so I said yes. I arrived to watch the morning rehearsal, and I found myself in this room full of the most remarkable athletes. And when you're watching people working at that level, you're actually just watching humans in total flow. And so I realised very quickly that it didn't really matter that I knew nothing about ballet. Throughout the day, various choreographers were holding classes and then all of a sudden Wayne turned up. And I knew he was resident choreographer, but I knew very little else about him. And he began to work with the dancers and immediately you could see there was something special going on. He was just totally immersed in the whole thing. And there was a level of concentration and intensity that hadn't been in the room until that point. After the piece, I asked Wayne what age he was when he first started having ballet lessons, and he said that he'd never actually had one in his entire life. From talking to him further, it became clear that he'd taken an unusual route to becoming resident choreographer at one of the most respected dance companies in the world. Wayne was born in 1970, just outside Manchester, in a town called Stockport. Tell me a bit about your parents. You know, they're brilliant, my parents. They're kind of very normal. They, they weren't really from an arts background at all. Actually, my dad's from a farming background in Scotland, quite a poor um, family upbringing. My mum's from a, a small place called Banff in Scotland. They met at 19, kind of just totally fell in love. They just kind of found such solace and happiness and kind of joy 
with one another and decided they needed to get out of Scotland. It was funny because I think, you know, my, my dad had had this horrendous day on the farm. I don't know exactly what happened, but he got back home and they, they literally both burnt their furniture. So you go on home and you sit in your room and you think, now, when and how am I ever going to get away from this? They literally took it outside, burnt the furniture, and packed a bag, didn't hardly have any money, basically, and just left. They just came to England, ended up for some strange reason in, in Stockport. And, um, yeah, just started a new life together there. And literally within a week, you know, he had a better job. They'd started to, you know, through hard graft. I think one of the things I really learned from my parents is just this, this really important thing about just working hard. So I think the things that they gave me most in my life was... Just this attitude all the time, just give it a go. If you fail, it doesn't matter, but just have a go, have a go. And give me the confidence to try and then just support you in doing it. I, th I think another thing that my parents have always been very good at is really being very empowering with all my friends. I had a lot, I'm an only child, but I had a lot of friends growing up. My parents fostered children when I was growing up. They fostered almost 21 children. I was kind of surrounded in a house with, um, with, with children who'd often come from quite difficult uh, backgrounds. But I was surrounded by people where I had to share, where I had to kind of um, understand something of what was going on with them. And then at what point did you realise you wanted to be a dancer? So I was growing up in the 70s and like later on in the 70s, you know, all those films like Grease and Saturday Night Fever were, were coming on, on, on in the cinema. And, you know, let's remember there's no internet in those days. OK, we're done. We could dance together. That's it. We could just dance together and uh, nothing more. Nothing personal. We didn't have access to lots and lots of information. We had like Encyclopedia Britannia, basically, <laughs> National Geographic, some news, and three TV channels. You probably live with your family, you hang out with your buddies, and on Saturday night you go and all off 2001, right? I mean, it wasn't like it is now where you, you have so much ability to see stuff. And so when these movies came on, they, they were like kind of like seismic changes to the way in which you look at the world. There was just something about the kind of the energy and the, the, the spirit of those films that I just really loved. It was more the feeling of the film that made me want to dance rather than the fact that I wanted to copy what they were doing. It was just part of it. Just, they, they were just so joyful and funny and um, yeah, I found them, I, I found them kind of, they hit the back of my neck in a way they kind of well they got inside my ribs the thing is that I, I would like to get that high someplace else in my life you know I can't even explain it other than it was just the feeling like of where? The... I don't know where I don't know someplace So I was eight, about eight then, and I, I said to my parents, I want to learn how to dance, I want to go and do that disco thing, which, you know, it sounds really funny now talking about disco, but at the time it was like the crumping of the day, right? And so, um, you know, in those days, if you were going to do those disco le lessons, you also had to do ballroom and Latin American classes. I met my first teacher, and it was so funny, because she, uh, she was called Miss Barlow, and she, she, you know, she worked, uh, she had this, like, dance studio on the top of, you know, you know the tile centre or something. And there's a two counts for each bit. Um, and she was one of these like archetypal kind of like ballroom 
women with the like really you know loads of makeup and kind of like really long eyelashes. When I hear them play dance, what was really interesting about her, she was very against competitions, which is very unusual in that kind of world. She was very against it. So I was never allowed to do any competitions. But I was teaching by about 12. She um, encouraged me because she didn't want me to do competitions to do um, more performances. So say, for example, it was like a New Year's dance. We weren't allowed to do the competition element, but me and my partner, Samantha, we were able to go and do like the demonstration dances, basically, you know, where you show something. And then she encouraged me to keep me interested, I think. She said, well, why don't you make your own version of the rumba or the cha-cha or the three-beat jive or the rock and roll? Why don't you make up your own pattern? Which, again, was quite unusual at that time because it's very systematised. Yeah, it's very kind of technical. When I hear them play, I think she realised, you know, that, that young people tend to do dancing for a period of time, you know, three, four years. And then if you're quite quick and you're a fast learner and you're doing all the exams and it's going well, then you look to do something else. And I think she, it was a way of engagement, right? It was a way of kind of keeping you focused into the work. You know, all, all of a sudden you start kind of finding this thing that you love and you're great at. How does that affect you in the rest of your life? I did very formal education. I did very formal um, GCSEs, O-levels and A-levels. I didn't do any um, arts-based stuff. I went to an all-boys school, quite a tough school. You know, in those days, a lot of racism in this school. My best friend was a, um, a Greek Cypriot and um, had a lot of um, hassle at school, really quite bad hassle. But I, all the artistic kind of endeavour stuff that I did, I did out of school. And of course... You know, what was amazing about that is I, I had a lot of friends who were girls and in an all-boys school that was um, useful. Did any of the lads from your school like want to come to dance classes? Only because of that, right. That, but yeah, absolutely. So on a Saturday, I had a class at five where um, I had a whole whole gang of um, guys from the school would come and have lessons. But again, you know, it's, it's one of those, it sounds a bit weird now, all these guys coming to do dancing, but at the time it really was the thing to do. It was really kind of, it was really very, very popular. It was something that people really wanted to kind of a taste and to touch. We're going to play a song. Give me Culture Club, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? How did this come into your life? Boy George, right? I mean, you know, I must have been about 12, 12, 13 when um, kind of Boy George hit the, um, hit the scene, well, certainly into my consciousness. And he was just so different. So, in, so in, incredibly kind of creative, both in his songwriting, the way in which he performed and what he looked like. And I, it really felt to me like that was somebody um, uh, that wasn't like anybody else, that he was really doing his own thing. Precious people always tell 
at what point do you realise that this is probably going to be your career? I mean, I, I wanted to do... I did a lot of amateur dramatics. So I did a lot of shows um, when I was, you know, my late, later teens. So, um, you know, shows really quite... From Beckett plays, I, I played Vladimir once in um, Waiting for God when I was about 14, to musicals. And so I thought I was going to do theatre. So when I was going around the universities, I um, went around looking to see if I would do um, kind of drama, really. But I went to this amazing um, uh, place called Bretton Hall, which is the Arts College of the University of Leeds, which is right in the middle of the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. It's this incredible kind of um, mansion space, really beautiful kind of surroundings. It was this amazing kind of Georgian house and then this huge, you know, all these amazing Henry Moore sculptures all over the landscape. And I just, I went there and I fell in love with it almost when I went down the drive before I even met any of the staff. <laughs> All they did at that time were arts. So, you know, you could do ceramics, you could do music, you could do uh, dance, you could do dramatic presentation. You had so many options of what you were able to do. I hadn't really experienced that before, because, you know, by this point, I'd not been to the theatre that much. I'd seen a few musicals. I hadn't really seen a lot of dance, pure dance. But all of a sudden, all of these like-minded people were all in one place, yeah, and, and kind of making things. And my day there was just brilliant, and um, I, I got offered a place there, and they were just starting a, a choreography degree. So I did a, a split degree of choreography and I think called semiotics, which is, I guess, the signs and symbols of life. Yeah, it's how is it that you look at people and work out uh, aspects of, of their, their personality and the ways in which they behave. So you leave Bretton Hall and you go off to New York to study. I do, yeah. I felt that, like, technically, I felt I've got so many brilliant things at Bretton and had an amazing kind of time with all these other kind of artists doing stuff. I felt that technically my body wasn't really um, in good enough shape to do the things that I wanted to do. I felt that technically I needed to kind of up the ante. And in those days, you know, New York was the kind of the, the centre of postmodern dance. It was, like, the most important place. I did classes, I did this thing where, you know, you would sign people in and take the garbage out at the end of the day. You get a free class. This kind of notion of exchange was something that happened a lot in America then. But also I got to see all these amazing American performers which performed outside. We agreed upon certain structure points, but within those structure points, the, the time within the structure points, we were free to, to do as the dance went and as the music might go. I saw John Cage conduct a performance himself with Merce Cunningham dancing. It's less like an object, more like the weather, because in, in an object you can tell where the boundaries are, but in the weather it's, it's impossible to say when something begins or ends. I saw the Martha Graham Company, all of these very famous, kind of iconic uh, American choreographers that I'd read about um, only at university. So New York was a really kind of seminal moment for that. So then you, you graduate from there and you're now in your early 20s? Or? Yeah, so I'm 21 and I come back and think, OK, I need to get a job. Um, but I want to, I don't want to work with another uh, choreographer. I want to make my own choreography. So kind of like a youthful arrogance. But obviously I needed money to do it and I needed to do it in London. So I came and I interviewed for a job. The Arts Council in London were looking for a new thing that they call an animateur, which was a, a person to um, work in the local community, and in this case East London, in um, the London Borough of Redbridge, um, and to use dance as a kind of an instrumental tool in affecting social change. 
So how is it that you can use dance to empower communities to have a voice, a voice in a range of things? So you're in, in 1992 in a really poor borough and you're in the youth centre telling all the kids to do interpretive dance basically yeah and we're doing all sorts of stuff we're doing well, i'm doing that but i'm also doing two tea dances with the over 70s and i'm doing you know dance with early bilingual learners you know um really interesting community in redbridge just a range of things that would use dance to help create a sense of kind of community cohesion or community endeavor and how did they take to it it was cool. They, they, it was brilliant. I really, really loved it. And one of the great things about it was the youth centre had a really beautiful gymnasium. So um, I was able to use that to make my own choreography that I was able to perform. So I got all my friends together. I drive between here and Leeds, where a lot of my university friends still were, to make my first piece with these eight dancers. So I did a combination of working really hard, but learning so much about how dance can change and affect lives. And at the same time, making my own kind of first piece that was about to be performed at the place in London. So the place, if people who don't know, the place is one of four or five very well-respected centres of dance in London, right? Yeah, it is. It's, and it's, it's very experimental. It's for kind of small-scale work. It's an auditorium of like 300 people. Um, but it's like, yeah, a lot of risk-taking goes on there. But I made this little piece, 20 Minutes, called Zeno, with my kind of seven friends. And the director of the place at that time was a brilliant guy called John Ashford who saw it, and he said to me, really good, get rid of half your dancers they're not good enough you need to have only have three or four dancers and I'll send it on a European tour and what he did that must have been a bit brutal chopping it in half first lesson right first lesson on on having kind of the humility to listen and you know and to to understand why and where that kind of thing came from um he wasn't just being kind of like you know capricious it was you know if you want this work to make a difference you have to um, work in this way, yeah, or you have to at least um, think about how you might adapt things. You can't be so precious about the work that you've made. Then did you start to work at the place directly off the back of that? Well, I was still doing Redbridge, and then um, after I did this um, this European tour, and it was amazing, you know, it was, it was all over Europe and then Montreal, you know, and this was kind of my first professional engagement with international promoters and it gave me an amazing kind of first touch point with people um, internationally whereas usually the method is you make something small it travels around the country then eventually you get kind of an international exposure um, so yeah so I, I, I did that and then he asked me if I would be the, the, the resident choreographer of the place and at that time the past resident choreographers of the place had all trained at the school because they have a school London Contemporary Dance School um, and they'd all been from that school and so I was the first one um, at the place who'd never trained there, um, which at the time was quite controversial. You know, when I initially I saw your work, I realised very quickly that there was something different about it. How did people react to it at first? I think people could see that. I think that's why people were excited by it. Don't young people who want to party have rights as well? Also, you know, by this time, this is the 90s, so this is the time when everybody's experimenting with kind of rave culture. And if it's young people prevented from doing their thing today, couldn't it be the rest of us tomorrow? With all these illegal raves in London and abroad. Well, where, where do you think they're going to? You know, and you get this amazing kind of fractured body. You know, I had some amazing 
uh, evenings in in Belgium where you would you would kind of dance like kind of weirdly and then you'd always find some weird other kind of partner to dance with and you you, you found I think the kind of originality or authenticity of of moving when you see a body kind of in a kind of repetitive action doing these really extraordinary things. And I think that really influenced the way in which I thought about uh, bodies and dancers. It wasn't so precious, it wasn't so formal, it was much rougher. It's much more about flow rather than it is about position, for example. So it's got a, a kind of a, a liveness, which um, I think came from from just actually what I was doing at the time, not just in formal dance, but also outside. And we ended up doing all these like performances in clubs all over uh, the UK and or, or raves, where actually you go in there and kind of stimulate a different type of moving. So we did a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of uh, performance stuff at the Arches up in Glasgow with Slam and all those slant guys and really kind of kind of extreme kind of interventionist performance where actually it affects the kind of the tone of the whole room. But at the same time, it's not about people sitting and watching you. It's about actually them participating in it. So how is it that you do something that gets other people um, to kind of engage in it? So I've always loved that. And I think that's the kind of the spirit of the work at that time in the 90s. Okay, so we're going to play some more music now. And what have you chosen as your second track? Well, I used to love Oteca at that time. And, um, I, yeah, so Oteca, foil. <laughs> Show by show, Random Dance was getting bigger and bigger. One night at the place would become two weeks, then they did shows at the Royal Festival Hall, and then in 2000 they got invited by New Sadler's Wells to become their first ever company in residence. However, the next big challenge for Wayne would be his rather unconventional appointment as resident choreographer at the Royal Ballet in Covent Garden. Well, it was kind of by the back door in a way, because... Um... I was working with a brilliant theatre director called David Laveau. Um, uh, it was a brilliant theatre director because I did at that time also a lot of plays in the West End and I was doing movement coaching on, in, in plays. And he, he, his girlfriend at the time was Viviana Durante, who was a huge, huge ballet star. 
Um, and she came to see one of my performances and really loved it. So she asked if I could make something for her. She was she was quite controversial herself. She was quite um, an incredible dancer, amazing kind of artistic flair, but was only prepared to do the things that she wanted to do. Kind of a real Italian temperament, a really phenomenal dancer. So I made something for her and me. We did something together. And what was so funny, we did it in Nottingham um, Playhouse, commissioned it. Um, and so we did it in Nottingham. And when we got to Nottingham, she said, as we get hit the stage, she said, oh, is this, are these the wings? As in the side of the stage. She didn't realize that was the stage. That was it. I was like, no, no, that is it. Right. She was like, oh, oh, okay. And so what's it like then working with these super high level ballet dancers? Do you have to change the way you approach things? Well, I mean, I'm inter- I said earlier, I'm interested in people and I'm interested in people having a voice. And I think, you know, so often in, uh, in the olden days with ballet, there was the choreographer sat at the front. There was a big gap of space between them and the dancers and the dancers were told what to do and they were pretty silent. And that's never been my way. I'm much more kind of uh, in dialogue with the dancers. So, okay, cool. So I'm going to just start from the very, the very beginning. And I thought, Ree, you know, the, the very first time you put your hands on B, I just want to see that. Partly be because they can offer things and do things I can't do. You take her out into the space, so we can have a little look. So, and actually, I think that's why it's exciting in relationship to ballet. So I've not had formal ballet lessons. I've had lots of other dance training. So my body is, is, is an expert in moving, but just not in that codified language. So here we go. So, and it goes, it's catching... And away, Ooh, ah, nice, a progressional arm, really nice, just gentle on the foot, gentle on the foot, fantastic. Okay, then, and off. Oh, really nice, a little bit bigger, little bit of a bigger plie. Da, wum, way, yeah, da, wum, way, da, wum, way, lovely. Tighter foot, Um But they do have that. So actually, if I can offer something of myself and they can offer something of themselves, there's something in the middle that's really interesting. And I work now with dancers from the Royal who are very articulate, very bright, who are really interested in, in, in challenging themselves creatively as much as just being told to do what the steps are. This is the moment off. When you come back, I want this leg to be more flat this way. It's a little bit here. I don't know how you can get it. But what do you need to do? I think, were you a bit falling forwards? Um, I think I just need to go... Around that yeah. Way. So it's that attention thing. It's the attention round and then the attention up. Yeah. So it's really, really, it's re- the grammar's really strong. Let's just try that. Cool. Boom. Reach, plie, around, up. That's it. That's it. And then two, these two wings that unfold. Boom. And I like to be with them. I like to be moving with them and close to them. And I like to feel the bodies. I don't like this distance and this kind of like um, autocratic way of making. And also, you know, if you give a great dancer kind of a good enough kind of instruction, they always do more than you could have imagined. New idea, gorgeous. Stop, finish the foot. Ja um a, ja um a. Dumb. Ja um, yeah. Lovely. Really tighten the legs. And it's endlessly surprising. I, you know, I never get into the studio and uh, I'm bored with what's going on because the body can behave in so many different and weird ways, and I, I love that. So what kind of reaction have you got from the critics when you've been working with institutions like Sadler's Wells and the Royal Ballet? I think I've always been really divisive. Clement Crispy was writing for the Financial Times. I remember one review was just... Wayne McGregor is interminable, full stop. That was the whole review. <laughs> and are you able to find that right balance between deflection and and embracing and, and kind of and, and working through it? Or? Not always. <laughs> Not right. always. Have you ever been floored by one? Um, I, I'm always floored by them because I, I think, you know, the things that you think are going to go well usually go badly. The things that go badly tend to go well, which is really strange. But I kind of have learnt this thing about having, you can only make work for an audience of one and that audience is me. I can't, I can't have any 
other um, kind of filter. I can't be thinking about, you know, all the national critics when I'm making a piece. And so I don't worry about it. But um, I think, you know, so many of these uh, critics feel that ballet particularly has to obey a particular framework. It has to have a a very particular um, set of rules. And for me, ballet or dance in general has always been an evolving, changing language. It's not fixed because bodies aren't fixed. Context isn't fixed, you know, the way in which people live isn't fixed. And I've always been passionate about thinking about plugging my work into the real world. It was one of the reasons why, you know, I, I would work with people outside of dance because I wanted them to kind of help us have an exchange with audiences that they could understand something different about the world in which we lived through the arts, but not about dance. Dance can be very insular, it can be very inward looking. And I've always wanted to break that out. So I want to talk to you about machines and technology. It's front and centre in your work. You can see it, you can feel it. How did that come about and how do they run alongside what you're doing? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, I was probably one of the first generation to have computers at home growing up. Relax. Now you and your children together can quickly grasp the secrets of any home computer. And so, you know, I'd spend hours and hours putting code into a computer and a kind of little worm would cross the screen and I'd be really delighted. Or you play kind of table tennis with your friends. Jargon becomes plain English. Games and education. Even programming is made simple. You know, that's what coding was in those days. Um, So computers are as kind of like connected to me as music, you know. So when I've been making choreography, it's been as natural for me to think about working with computers or digital technology as anything else. Um, And I've never been one to think that the hierarchy of dance has to always be music and dance together. I've never been interested in dancing describing music. I think that could be a very beautiful thing, but it's never kind of got me out in the morning. Um, And I'm interested in how now technology kind of makes visible things that have been invisible in us, whether that be aspects of creativity or aspects of what the brain is doing or, you know, I'm very interested now in kind of um, biometric data, states of adrenaline, all of this. So then you got invited to go up to Cambridge University. So I had a research fellowship there. I suggested to them, you know, it's interesting that so often cognitive scientists, so brain scientists, work with people who have some kind of loss, a loss of information, some trauma in the brain that makes something not quite work, and they're able to see what is, you know, inverted commas, normal, and what's not working. We certainly have plenty of people who've lost sensation in past the body, like after a nerve injury. And I said that, you know, that dancers and choreographers have a kind of an excess of this kind of physical thinking. The future of ballet depends on the recruitment of athletes who are artists too. So, like, dancers, you know, really understand what the ends of their fingertips feels like in all sorts of dimensions. And that's a thing called proprioception. It's a thing that we all have, but we don't don't necessarily label it. What happens when a dancer comes really close behind you at the back of your head? And these are interesting now for technology because if you think about something like Skype, you've got kind of a very two-dimensional image where all of those cues that your body picks up and your brain picks up naturally are no longer there. And so it's a kind of an artificial way of communicating. So if the aspiration of technology is to find more and more ways to have more natural, more real communication, you need lots of these signals to be able to do it. So I think the parallels between physical thinking and technology, between science and um, dancing, are really, really close.
How's your dance going to develop through through kind of this understanding through science? Well, we've, I mean, I've been working with scientists now for 12 years and um, I think one of the things that I've learned is that we've got frameworks of thinking and these are habits. And so we talk all the time about being in the moment or instinctive and actually we're not any of those things because the job of the brain is to make patterns and construct meaning from things. And so our... Our uh, ideas in some way are fixed. So how do you actually really undo those things? How do you really become instinctive? If you think about it, think about brushing your teeth. You know, we all tend to brush our teeth in exactly the same way. And that is a form of physical thinking. And actually, if you just change hands and reverse the action of the um, toothbrush, all of a sudden your brain is activated in a different way. And because it's activated in a different way, you're grabbing bits of information in a different way that you've never experienced before. And when you're concentrating on that, you're doing something else. You're firing up your brain. You're firing up your imagination, therefore, in a different way. And if you can do that with dancers or young people or anybody, if you can make them think differently from their usual ways of thinking, they produce novel solutions to things. They innovate. They think differently. And that's essentially what it is. It's technicities of creativity. So when you're choreographing a piece, you're like, okay, here's all your moves and here's what I want you to think about whilst you're doing the moves. Well, kind of that. Or or rather than even starting with the move, saying this is the kind of the the imaginative space that we're thinking about and I prime the space so we've got a kind of an image in mind and we're sharing the image in some way and then I'm saying I want you to zoom in and look at just that corner of the image and we're going to work with that for a little bit and then I want you to zoom out a bit and I want you to take the rhythm of that image and we're going to work with that for a bit so I'm doing that and they're doing that and something happens in between and kids love this we do this with kids I do this with eight-year-olds and they're phenomenal at it because they've got no fixed ideas of what are right and wrong at that age and so they can whiz through that in a really extraordinary way and teachers have really found that it's really opened them up to really new ways of solving problems and I guess our aspiration is to try and encourage people not just in dance to really see how they can become as open as possible to allow things to channel through them and have a kind of a better creative life a more exciting life a more interesting life we're going to play another track now and it's called Dolly and it's from Steve Reich's opera Three Tales you two have collaborated together in the past, right? I did on my, one of my very first pieces and several since, but he's going to be his 80th birthday um, this year and he's writing a new piece for me for Covent Garden, which I'm super excited about. And placed him in the dark and a beaten To surfeit and to keep it The process is as follows. process They removed the nucleus from an egg. No genes in it at all. Take her.
skin, the hair, anyway. They took a frozen, frozen udder cell from a sheep that was dead. This period in Wayne's career would see him collaborating with an array of architects, musicians, fashion designers and artists. He continued to direct a series of shows for the Royal Ballet, including the smash hit Chroma in 2006. And then three years later, it occurred to him that with Covent Garden being the home of both the Royal Opera House and the Royal Ballet, that perhaps they should collaborate. And so in 2009, for the first time in their histories, they performed a double bill of Dido and Aeneas and Asis and Galatea. I mean, I've worked a lot with other directors and operas. I've done about 18 operas in my uh, life. But um, this was the first time I got to direct and choreograph the operas. So um, actually the very first time I was invited to La Scala to direct Dido and Aeneas, which was with dance and ballet. And it worked so well that I wanted to try a kind of a, a similar version at um, Covent Garden. But, you know, it's so it's such a huge organisation, Covent Garden. It's the 300-odd people. Um, you know, they're all doing amazingly creative work. But we, we kind of, we all go on certain kind of, directions in our life don't we and I just thought you know come on let's let's have the ballet and the opera genuinely kind of connect let's get some opera singers who are fantastic at moving and let's see what we can invent together and uh, it worked phenomenally well just on the subject of collaborations you know you've collaborated with Jack White from the White Stripes with Mark Ronson uh, with John Pawson who's a big architect with Gareth Pugh who's an amazing designer literally countless other people I'm sure but that's just a few of them every time I'm sure you're like kind of going in you're like right I need to get this really minimal architect and I need to get Jack White who's from a big rock band who you've never heard before and I want this really out there designer Gareth to make like mental outfits so I bet there was a little bit of like well, it was a bit of a holding of the breath, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, at the end of the day, people come. And what's exciting about it is that people come and want to watch it. And the kind of demographic, the audience at Covent Garden has changed because of those collaborations. People who come are different. And for me, it's not enough that Covent Garden is always full. That's just not enough, yeah. It's, it has to be that it's, it's full with a range of people. And we, we're just going to keep pushing that. We want to do it better. You know, we want to find a different way of pricing those seats. We want to make sure that that um, mixed audience is, is, is something that we really kind of grow. But the collaborations, they come from the point of view of me being a fan of these people. I'm a fan of Mark Ronson. And I just thought, he's like, you know, or someone like Gareth Pugh. They're part of um, an artistic world that I really love. And they could just bring something really phenomenal to Covent Garden and I just asked would you come and see if we can go on an adventure and try and make something together in that context and usually they say yes I find it really refreshing that the creative director is saying right listen guys we need to have a look at the way we're doing pricing we need to have a look at the different demographic that we're pulling through the door I saw you did something really interesting where you did a whole exhibition space in the foyer of this amazing building that is Covent Garden you know and you're like 
I need people coming through here. I need people just, you know, just some runoff. You know, there's, all, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people walking around the surrounding streets. Why are they not in here? Why are we not coming through? You know, what's the driver for that? Well, I think it's just I'm, I love dance. I'm passionate about it. And I know that other people, if they can just get access to it, would really love it too. And I think it's just about the, the touch points. I think it's so easy to be off, put off by a whole range of things that you don't know. And I think it's fine if you have an experience of it and then don't like it or not interested in it. That's totally fine. But not to like it before you've experienced it is the problem. And all I care about is what gets inside my body what actually makes me feel that I want to move and what actually communicates to audience and makes them feel either joyful or thoughtful or challenged. And so all of these artists that we get in uh, to do that have to work in a context that's also right for them. So there's no point in bringing Mark Ronson into the Opera House and then having an audience that want to watch something else, yeah? You have to do the work to also try and get the right fit for the audience. And that's what we've been working at. And actually what you find then is the 78-year-old who's an absolute avid classical ballet lover absolutely loved Carbon Life, which is the piece that we did with Mark Ronson. You'd never have expected it, right? But actually, then they tell you the whole story about what music they were into as a young person, or they all, it all unfolds, yeah. And that's super important. I want to talk to you about the work that you do with children. Your, your work uh, through all the groups and the outreach and all the rest of it, you'll end up working with, you know, five, six, seven thousand kids in a year, right? We're interested in working with people who don't currently dance. So these seven, 8,000 young people are people that don't currently dance. They're usually from disadvantaged backgrounds, whether they be in East London, where we still do a lot of work, or Jarrow in South Shields, or, or all over the country, and actually now over the world. We've started some projects in Kenya and also in um, uh, Mali and um, uh, Senegal. Um, and it's just... Um, going in a situation where they really don't know what to expect and trying to motivate them. What's amazing about working with kids is they could not care less who you are when you walk in that room, couldn't care less. Yeah, they'd not looked at your CV, don't know who you are, not interested in anything that you're interested in. All they care about is what happens in that hour and a half. And if they're not engaged, they tell you within five minutes because the behaviour is affected in a particular way. Just yeah. not paying any attention. Yeah, they don't pay any attention, they walk with their feet. But I get more nervous still going into a group of 14-year-olds in Barking and Dagenham than I would walking into the Paris Opera, like literally, because you, you, you literally don't know what is going to go on. But I'm a big believer in, first of all, not hearing the teacher tell you all of the difficult children before you start. I'm not interested. I want to find out for myself. I want to go in there fresh and just see. And I feel that with energy... And with a kind of a, an attitude that says, you can really do this and we're going to do something extraordinary. The discipline takes care of itself. And actually you find this incredible talent. I've never been in a group where there's not been some talent. And talent, I mean, from the most unexpected place, not the usual suspects. And uh, that's why we do it. We love doing it and we're going to continue to do it.